All right, everybody. Let's have a seat. Get ready for Deuteronomy class. Somebody donated this beautiful picture to our church. It says, Grace Upon Grace. You like that? That's neat. I like that a lot, yeah. Donate to the church, but I'm probably going to hang it up in my office. How's that? <laughs> ah. Anyway, good deal. I need it. Is that what you said? If you need it. Way to save yourself on that one, Colleen. I'll tell you what, let's pray. Get started. I apologize for a little bit over. Father, you're gracious to us. Just pray, Father, you lead us through the book of Deuteronomy. Thank you, God, for our time in it today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to complete Deuteronomy 6 today. I know that it's taken since uh, we reconvened Sunday school after the summer. We've been going through a lot of information, but my goal is to get done with chapter 6 today. And I think an important thing to bring to mind is the whole idea of what does a home look like that glorifies God? If you remember last week, I had you, or was it two weeks ago? Two weeks ago? I had you write down some ideas of what a God-glorifying home looked like, or we would say in our current context, a Christian home looked like. What in the world would be the characteristics of that? And what you find in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 6 is you find that it is a place that has been saturated completely with the idea of God's defining word or presence over all things. Uh, so like, hey, what's up, buddy? Okay. Come here. Come see me. It's okay. Come see me. Hey, we're, we're studying Deuteronomy. What are you doing? Are you going home? Um, no. <laughs> I think you are. Can you say hi to everybody? Hi. Right. Hey, let's do this real quick. Let's see. Can you can you say your verses? No. Please. No. In the beginning. In the beginning. Uh oh. <laughs> you can do it. All have. You're you're making me look really bad here. Christ. You know that one. Christ. What? He's whispering it. Let's see. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Tom paid him probably. Want a tricycle, little boy? Don't say your verses in church. In the beginning. He's just going to whisper it. The God created the heaven and the earth. Good job. Okay. I love you, buddy. Well, I have to teach. I have to teach right now. I have to teach the Bible right now. You say hi to Colleen. Say hi to Mary. Yeah, they're all excited to see you. Yeah. Say, we need haircuts. We got to go get haircuts. Yeah. Come on. Go with Mama. Run with me. Oh. Oh, careful. There we go. Run, buddy, run. I promise he knows these verses. <laughs> Talking about a Christian home is like, do you know your verses? No. There you go. So, so let's, let's look at it in particular here, starting with verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our Elohim. Yahweh is one. And remember, that one is a compounded one, is the idea there. It is, it is multiple entities that make up a whole. Like we saw, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one 
flesh. Same idea. Echad is what it is in the Hebrew. It's a compounded one. So notice this idea of, of Trinitarianism is not something that's new. It's as old as Deuteronomy and how Moses chose or was led by the Holy Spirit to use the words. Notice in verse 5, you shall love Yahweh your Elohim with all your heart. And remember, that is the issue. With all your soul, that is how you are living your life or your very breath. And with all of your might, that is the force or the abundance or the muchness, as one translation says, that you use. In other words, your entire existence was to be saturated with God. All of it. It, it wasn't just a it wasn't just a Sunday only thing. It was a how you make your decisions, how your home is set up, the interactions that you have with one another, all of it. In fact, I would go as far as to say a lot of the reasons why we have some difficulties, it would seem like in a lot of public interaction that we have with people, is we can trace it back to unbelief has somehow unknowingly taken root in the home. It has. And a lot of the ways that that starts is, is a denial of the attributes of God. That can be something as simple as Adam saying, you know, let's go sow some fig leaves together so that God can't see what we're doing. Let's hide behind this tree. A lot of times we find that because we are in denial of who God is, it allows for sins to start taking root. Well, the entire home, our entire attitude, everyone's individual life of Israel was to be set up in such a way as to where he was the central, all-encompassing sphere of everything of how these people existed. Does that make sense? And notice that the first thing he brings up is the heart is because the idea is that truth needs to penetrate the heart. Verse 6, these words which I'm commanding to you today shall be on your heart. How? He tells you. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house or when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. We went over this a lot two weeks ago, but let me just sum this up in this way. Regardless of where you are in life, God is there. Regardless of what you're doing in life, there is a truth to be applied or taught. And notice that it is to be generational in nature. It is to trickle down. If you notice, whenever Jesus was teaching people, he often gave agricultural analogies, did he not? Wasn't he always pulling from things, you know? Sower goes out to sow some seed. Some fell here, some fell here. Everybody automatically had a visual of what in the world that looked like. This wasn't something foreign. He was using everyday instances in order to communicate deep spiritual truths. It's no different for you and I. We've just got to look for those opportunities and pray that the Holy Spirit would work through us in order to teach that. And here's another reason why this is very important. Because a lot of what goes on in communicating Christianity in the family is caught, not taught. Husbands, how many times have you dared open your mouth to tell your wife that something needed to be a certain way and then not too long after that, you're guilty of the exact same thing you called her on. Never. Where is Roxanne? She's not here. Exactly. She's not here. Somebody is recording. Mitch, you're recording this, right? Okay, get a message. Text Roxanne right now. She needs to listen when you post it. That's good. See, I'll sell you out in a heartbeat because it's sin. But that happens, does it not? Don't we often find that the things that we're trying to preach to other people, we haven't dealt with this, the log in our eye before we're trying to get the speck out of somebody else's eye. That type of opportunity, that type of teaching is to be not just taught, but it has to be caught. If you're not living it, why in the world would you expect your kids to live it? It makes no sense. Uh, how about this? Kids, you notice they try to divide you? Even at two and a half years old, my kid, 
Yeah. No, I'm not doing that. Mommy, I want to do this. No, you can't do that. Dad, right? That's immediately the next thing. Somebody's got to tell me yes. Somebody's got to give me permission to do this thing that I know I shouldn't do, but if I just get their permission, it's okay. Do you realize that the majority of the counseling situations I do with people is because they're trying to act like two-and-a-half-year-olds? They're trying to get me to okay some sort of sin that they know is wrong, that they've talked with other people and it's wrong, but for some reason, because of the position I hold, if they can get my approval upon it, it all of a sudden becomes okay. Roxanne, your husband's sitting right up here. And you'll learn the uh, weight of that joke later. It's not you, it's him. I'm not knocking why you weren't here at the beginning. I'm talking about the things that Jim said while you were away. <laughs> and not just because of the snow either. <laughs> Everything is to be saturating that. Or let me say this. The most one of the most dangerous things we can do in our homes is think for ourselves. It really is. God's already given us directive. God has already given us um, standards. He's already given us truth to communicate. A lot of times we find ourselves in a situation and for some reason we can't draw it to God's situation and how He has structured things. I mean, just break it down basically uh, to what culture is attacking now. Culture is attacking the family, yes? Okay, it is. The homosexual movement, it's, a, it's an attack on the family. Transgender movement, it's an attack on the family. Uh, corrective surgery, notice the language there, because somehow God got it wrong. It's saying the way that God designed you was wrong. It's all an attack on the family, and here's the reason why. If you can attack the family and dismantle the family, you can erode the culture. Washington doesn't set the standard for the culture. They don't set the tone for the culture. It doesn't happen. The church, I think this is important, the church as an entity right here of itself does not set the tone for the culture. The family does. And you will find that a lot of the um, maybe disagreements we have with the way other people raise their kids, the way that other people make decisions as a family, what other people choose to do with their time and, and whatever else it is, you f will actually find that that's usually traced generationally or somebody got in there and had an influence on the family that was accepted as a greater truth than what the standard of God's Word is. Those are all dangerous things because Satan's main job is trying to erode the culture. He's trying to drag everybody to hell. He doesn't care. He doesn't care at all. So why is this so important? Why is it that every situation in the family needs to be centered around that it doesn't just come because mom and dad said so, but it actually has a standard foundational truth that God has put into focus way before the fact? It's because you are always pulling it back to the one who sets the standard for right and wrong. That's important. Let me say this real quick and then we'll move forward, but I feel like it's important. <laughs> I was listening to somebody, I can't even remember, I want to think it was um, Clough who was here, Charlie, uh, that was here. I think he was talking about this one time. Uh, about, and some of you, I think you brought it up at the little conference that we had, uh, about Ravi Zacharias' ministries and them going to colleges. He said that you, you would have a guy from his ministry that would study for three weeks, you know. Uh, well, if there's a good and loving God, why is there evil? Those types of things. How could he allow that to happen? Well, my mom died of cancer. How in the world could a good and loving God have that 
you know, take place. And you, you, so he's studying for all of these answers, making sure he's got a biblical reason, a way to communicate it effectively, all these things like that. And, and what this guy from Ravi Zacharias's ministry was surprised to find is when he got on the college campus, nobody was asking those questions that he studied for. Everybody was asking the question, who am I? Everybody had an identity crisis. Everybody was trying to cultivate their own identity. They are trying to make, the, they're trying to define themselves as who they are. Now, does anybody know the problem that that stems from? Exactly. Now, you read that on a card somewhere, didn't you? <laughs> she, the, the, the point is perfect. Sue said it perfectly. The problem is not, who am I? The question that really needs to be answered is, whose am I? Because by who you belong to defines who you are. These kids are trying to get into all this stuff. Why do people deal with drugs? Why, why do people get all messed out in drugs? Why? Because they can't handle reality, right? How come people get involved in one-night stands and affairs and divorces and things like this? What's that? Searching for something. Searching for fulfillment somewhere. Searching for answers somewhere. What has God said? God has said that the marital relationship is to be one that is to be exercised in such a way as to where fulfillment is found. Especially, especially, the Bible doesn't apologize about this, especially and specifically in sexual desire so that you're not tempted to sin outside of that marriage covenant. He designed it that way. That's what it's for. Many other things, yes, but Paul is very strict about that. It is better for you to marry than to burn. That's the idea, to burn with passion, to burn with lust. By simply following what God says to do, you avoid a myriad of problems. Cool, you guys are 17 years old, want to shack up together? Before you do that, you need to get married. That's the type of commitment you need to make. Well, that's dumb. That's old-fashioned. No, it's not old-fashioned. It's actually the way that God designed it before the foundation of the world of how the family should be structured. But Because before there was ever sin, that's the way it happened. Adam and Eve didn't shack up and then decide they were going to get married. That didn't happen in God's sight. That didn't happen in a God-ordained, perfect environment. That's the ide ideology that sin comes about. Well, what if we don't get along? Then you shouldn't be sleeping together. Hello? What, that's going to make that issue better? Everybody see how complicated our world's become? And it's all because somehow we got this idea. And it's no different from the garden. It's not. It's not a new idea. But we got this idea or we grabbed onto this idea that what people think, what social norms are, well, that's the way they've always done it, but that isn't, it's not the way they do it now kind of thing. Somehow, if we render something Irrelevant, old-fashioned, out-of-date. It's not true anymore. That's crazy. Anybody listen to any modern worship music lately? It's horrible. All of it's awful. You know what it tells me? We need to be singing older songs. It's a lot more sounder than that. You have a personal vendetta. Calm down. <laughs> so, I know who you sing with. Be careful. So, notice... Understanding what truth is and not just teaching that truth, embracing that truth, living that truth. Everything is saturated with God's truth. That's the idea. So notice it says here, verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand 
and they shall be as frontlets on your foreheads. And we talked about how people abused this into the idea of phylacteries to make themselves look holy. Verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In a Jewish home, you would go through and you would find on some of the doorways what was called a mezuzah. That's a real fun word to say, mezuzah. But what it is, is it's a small box. You could actually get them on eBay. I typed in mezuzah and eBay and they sell them. You can get them $12.95. It's a carved wooden box. And what it is, is they would have it, they would place it on the doorway here. And I think one of the requirements was it could not be placed on any doorway that led outside of the home. It had to be an internal doorway. And I think the reason was it was because it, the, the box is filled with strands of Scripture. And it's to symbolize the internalization of God's Word that you're dealing with. And what's interesting, we talk about things are more caught than they are taught in situations. What you would have happen is any time that a person of a Jewish family would be walking through their home, every time they would pass through that doorway and see that mezuzah, they would reach up and they would touch it as they'd walk through. Every time. Didn't matter what they were doing. You think a six-month-old eventually saw what was going on there? Yes? More caught than taught. In fact, it's interesting, some of the stuff I wrote down, uh, it was a a device to remind them that the word means the word mezuzah means door jam or frame and it symbolizes a home where the people are holy in devotion and a love relationship a love reverence to Yahweh they're dedicated to his service uh, let me see here Deuteronomy 6 4 through 9 this passage here and also chapter 11 verses 13 through 21 which is the other part of the Shema that we read everybody remember that long paper that you've got it's the rest of that. They were actually written on scrolls. They were wrapped up and kept inside of. If you're wondering how to spell mezuzah, let me spell it for you. M-E-Z-U-Z-A-H. M-E-Z-U-Z-A-H. Yes, ma'am. They have them on Amazon too. Awesome. There you go. Um, let me see here. It was affixed to the right-hand side of the door so everybody could touch it as they, as they went through. And it had inscribed on it Shaddai, uh, which most people uh, would see and understand there. Uh, they, they would touch it. Anybody remember what Shaddai means? Any, any Amy Grant friend, uh, fans? El Shaddai? God? No, that's Jaira. What is it, Laverne? Oh, Almighty is the idea. Shaddai, the Almighty. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I don't think so. Except it wouldn't surprise. I mean, that's just that's just Satan's modus operandi, really. Whatever God has done, let's let's imitate it and counterfeit it. Yeah, I mean, you know, unholy Trinity, that whole thing. Uh, that I, that wouldn't surprise me having the markings on the forehead or the or the the hand. Yeah, with with the number of the beast, that wouldn't surprise me. It's not a microchip, guys. Okay, it's an actual number uh, that's either either probably pressed on there with with um, an iron, a branding iron, or it's probably tattooed on or something like that. See, tattoos are evil. I want to mess with that stuff. So moving on. So the idea of the mezuzah there. I wrote this down, and again, I've been studying this so much. I wrote it down because I knew I would forget how to word it. The sequence is that God's word gets into the heart of the individual which brings a personal change in convictions. And that change trickles over into the family structure. The family controls the culture, or controls the gates 
of a society. If the family has changed, the culture changes. That's important to understand. So even people's homes were set up in such a way as to where everything they had would replicate a devotion to Yahweh. Now maybe today in the church age, we're going to symbolize that with we have Thomas Kincaid paintings around or we have praying hands or something like that. And I know sometimes I poke fun at that stuff, but the idea is is setting up our homes in such a way as to where, yeah, every everything that we have glorifies the Lord. Uh, as, as you are probably aware, one of my greatest fears is to have a rebellious child when he gets older, right? Uh, but one thing that I have to remember, and the Word of God seems very strict upon, is the fact of if he rebels, that's his personal responsibility. I cannot fail in my personal responsibility of setting up my home and all my interactions and teachings with him, constantly drawing him back to the Word of God as the source of which it should be. Does that make sense? Train a child in the way that he should go. How should he go? According to the Lord. According to his Word. Holding fast to it always. When he's older, he will not depart from it. You think Solomon knew something about rebellious children? When he's older? Right? What's that tell you between the younger and the older? What's that teenage phase look like? having the word before him. So, verse 10. Then it shall come about when Yahweh, your Elohim, brings you into the land, which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So notice, it brings you back to the idea of the Abrahamic covenant, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build. Notice, and if you want, mark these in your Bible. It wouldn't hurt. Number one, they're going to get to take, play, they're going to get to take advantage of great and splendid cities they did not build. Notice the next one here. Two, uh, houses full of all good things which you did not fill. Number three, hewn cisterns. In, in other words, storage places. Sorry, my phone is on and it should not be. Storage places in order to keep water is the idea. Hewn cisterns. Uh, let me see here. Which you did not dig. Number four, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plan and you eat and are satisfied. Now stop. The idea of vineyards and olive trees are extremely important. Why is that? Because those are considered high-class commodities. That's the reason why. It's not your basic wheat and flour middle-class ideas. To actually have olives for olive oil, to actually have vineyards of which they were going to produce wine, is screaming of the abundance that they're going to, to partake of, and yet they had nothing to do with what they were going to be freely given. Does that sound like anything you know? Exactly. Salvation. Exactly. So notice, this whole idea of them coming in and receiving freely what God has conquered for them and provided for them and another has set it up for them to take full advantage of totally gives you some symbolism towards what the gospel is. Now notice what he says here. When you eat and you are satisfied, that word in the Hebrew satisfied means to satisfy one's self on something. Look what it says after that. Then watch yourselves, watch yourselves, keep guard over yourselves, that you do not forget Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Let me give you some verse references to put next to that, the idea of watch yourselves so that you don't forget if you want to write them down. Chapter 4, verse 9. 4, verse 9. Verse 23. Verse 31. Chapter 4, verses 9, 23, 31. All pertain to this idea. Also, chapter 8. Chapter 8, verses 11, 14, and 19. Chapter 8, 
verses 11, 14, and 19. In other words, this idea of watching yourselves because God's the one who delivered you from Egypt is constantly bringing them back to the conditional covenant relationship that God has made with them by the mouth of Moses. Okay, remember, the Mosaic covenant is conditional. It is a contract that is conditional upon terms of behavior. Abrahamic covenant, unconditional. God will do it all regardless of obedience or disobedience. He will see his promises through to the end. So moving on here. You shall fear only Yahweh your Elohim, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. In other words, monotheism. Okay? And why is that? Look at the next verse. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. For Yahweh your Elohim in the midst, notice, not far away, but he's personal, of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of Yahweh your Elohim will be kindled against you and he will wipe, the word is hismet, he will exterminate you off the face of the earth. In other words, his hand of wrath will come against you because you worshiped other gods and not him. Now think what Israel's coming out of. They're coming out of the situation of multi-gods all around them, yes? They're dealing with an attitude of oppression and slavery that they're coming out of. They've now been set free, and for 40 years, they have seen nothing but God providing, 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 providing. And why does he do that? And why does he deal in swift justice in every situation? And why does he give them the righteous law by which they can have fellowship with him? Because God is going to great lengths to further convince them of the fact that he can take care of them And that is why their devotion needs to be solely in his direction. When they walk into this promised land, they're commanded to destroy everything, yes? In fact, if you remember, we had a a Hebrew word that dealt with that. Does anybody remember what it is? You've got to say it with the the guttural, the nasty nasty phlegm sound. That's how you say it. Is the idea. The idea is, is complete and utter destruction. When you come into the land, you are to destroy everything. Man, woman, child they are not to live why is that because the seeds of evil by demonic activity had already been threaded in that society and it was unsavable now that's pretty interesting for yahweh to render a judgment in that way to use his chosen people who are not soldiers or warriors in order to do it but what is he trying to do in the mix of it he is trying to save them from the same type of corruption He knows that with that society not responding to the revelation that they've been given and diving further, further into a corruption that is manifesting itself generationally, notice it's a family problem, he is now calling them to set their families different. And even though they're going to take of the houses and vineyards and cisterns and all these things that they didn't do as a gift to them in coming into the land trusting him, they're still not to allow any people to live. Because that influence, that little bit of yeast, will work its way through the entire batch of dough. You have to cleanse the yeast out if you want your dough to be unleavened. You have to. It's just a principle of Scripture. Has everybody got any questions before we try to wrap this up quickly? We're not going to make it to the end of the chapter, but we're trying, doggone it. I want to be respectful of our Sunday school teachers valiantly making it through the snow to be here. I'm thankful for them very much. I don't mean that sarcastically, I'm being honest. So notice verse 16. You shall not put Yahweh your Elohim to the test as you tested him at Masa. Masa means testing. 
That's where that means. And this is speaking in Exodus 17 about the first time they came to a point where they cried out for water and Moses struck the rock and water came out the first time. Okay, everybody remember that? Now, why didn't God punish Israel at that time? Here's the reason why. They had been freshly set free from bondage and slavery of Egypt and they were on their way to Sinai. And what do they receive at Sinai? The law. They receive instructions on how to now live their lives and precepts of which to guide their thinking. They did not have that between Egypt and Sinai. When they sin in this part right here, against God, doubting His character, doubting His provision, all this stuff, He has mercy on them because they're ignorant people. I think that's important for us to understand. But notice this. Once they were given great revelation on how to live their life directly from the mouth of God so that it brought fear to them and they would structure their families in such a way as a response and obedience, now they became fully culpable for how they lived their lives. Does everybody see that? It's no different from the Christian life. God does not pick up babies in Christ and spank them relentlessly because of their disobedience. He does not do that. Why? Because they need to grow. They need to know the milk of the Word of God so that they can have their senses trained with discernment and begin living life in light of the only truth that is available to us. It's a totally different thing from all the indoctrination that the world tries to to sow into a person that changes the very fabric of how they make decisions. So notice that Old Testament idea of being set free, apply the blood, you're set free out of bondage. You now come to a point where you are learning the precepts of God and now are held responsible for how you live your life. And that will determine whether or not you inherit the promised land or if you wander in a wilderness. It's the same idea. It's typified in the idea of the Christian life. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay, good. So notice that's constant reoccurrence that Moses is trying to bring up here. Any questions before we pray and close it out? Again, I want to be respectful to all the Sunday school teachers. Okay, next week, we are definitely finishing chapter 6. And we are going to march on solidly into chapter 7. We're going to, yes. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray that we think about how our families are structured. It's never too late. As long as we have breath in our lungs, we can always look at opportunities to redirect the family enterprise towards truth. Whether it be in teaching situations, whether it be that we're going to the store, whether it be that we just need to communicate how to live life, or whether it be that we've set our homes up in such a way as to where reverence and fear of you is constantly being projected. Thank you, God, for loving us, giving us truth to lead us and to guide us. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. If you wouldn't mind, we do need help with the wand and if we could set up the chairs and tables in the back for hermeneutics, I'd greatly appreciate that.